You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And then we turn to chapter 5, verse 33 to 42. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put aside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and all his followers were scattered. And therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is 
the Christ. I preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as the Church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because He saves us from all our sins and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, the second line of The Apostles' Creed reads, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And you can note from Lord's Day 11 that we have now started to work on the meaning of this second line. We are have dealt with God the Father in relation to the matter of creation, as well as God the Father in relation to his providence. In other words, we have considered the person and the work of the first person of the triune God. And that means it's time to now reflect upon the second person of the triune God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means, you can say, we are now moving on to the most remarkable person who has ever lived or walked on the face of the earth. You can only consider some of the following things. No one knows the precise year of his birth. We don't know it even today. And yet his birth divides history into either B.C. or A.D. He never wrote even one book during his short lifetime here on earth, but more books have been written about him than anyone else in all of history. He never painted a picture He never wrote any poetry. He never dreamed up any plays, composed any music. But yet more pictures, poems, plays, and music have had him as their subject than anyone else. He never led an army. Yet millions of people have laid down their lives for him, either rightly or wrongly. He never spoke to more than a few thousand people at one time, and yet his voice has been heard and is still being heard by innumerable numbers of people. His public ministry lasted only three years, and yet its impact has not faded even thousands of years later. He set foot in only two countries, and yet today his words can be heard all over the world. He never owned any property, as far as we know. And yet he happens to have more buildings erected in his name and dedicated to his name than anyone else. He earned no degrees, went to no university, yet thousands of schools and colleges and universities are named after him. His first followers came mostly from one nation, And today, his followers come from all the nations of the earth. And so, beloved, we could go on mentioning more things and adding to this list. 
But what it underlines is the fact that there is no end to his uniqueness. There is no end to his greatness. There is no end to that one name that stands out above all other names. Yes, and to see that even more clearly and to spend some time on that this afternoon, I preach to you on the following theme, the Son of God is named or given a name. And we shall see that it's a saving name, first of all, a singular name thereafter, and a supreme name, finally. So the Son of God is given a name, a saving name, a singular name, a supreme name. Well, beloved, as we consider the matter of the names of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, especially the name Jesus, the place to begin, actually, is, of course, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. It's a very well-known part of the Bible. It's something that we read every time of the year, especially in the twelfth month of the year. It begins with a long genealogy informing us and underlining the fact that he was a real person with real ancestors and ancestry. And it also shows us so very clearly that he is the climax, the apex of the ages. All the lines, all the generations come together in him and in his name. And why is that so? Why why does Matthew build his gospel and his genealogies this way? Well, the answer lies in Matthew 1, the verses 18 to 15. You know, Matthew begins his account by telling us his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And you need in that line to note especially the word pledged. That word pledged tells us that probably... Mary and Joseph were in the second stage or second phase of the Jewish marriage process. And it is quite a process. See, the first part of this process is often called the engagement. And that could take place at almost any time, even when the children were very, very young. Two fathers might get together and agree on a match between their particular children, even though perhaps those children are still in diapers. As such, it was more of an arrangement, you might say, than an engagement. The second stage, however, after the engagement, which could last many, many years, the second stage is called the betrothal stage, and during it, a man and a woman are actually pledged to one another. And as such, this was done in a kind of solemn ceremony. It was also considered to be a rather binding step, and witnesses were present, and family was there, and all kinds of things were happening. And during this stage, the couple would live separately, but they would often already call each other husband and wife. Strange as that may sound when you don't live together. And also, this was such a serious step that couples could not really undo this engagement easily, except by a process of divorce. Should one of them die while pledged, the other would commonly be treated as his or her widow or widower. And finally, this stage often lasted about one year, after which the marriage proper would take place, and the couple would begin to live together. Well, now, 
What Matthew tells us indicates that we are into this second stage, this betrothal stage, this stage in between engagement and marriage. And then it says in Matthew 1 that during this in-between stage, Mary was found to be with child. When you first read that, you think, oh, they were doing something they shouldn't have done. But not so fast, for Matthew also adds these words, but before they came together. So there had been no intimate relations between Mary and Joseph, no sexual contact one another. They had honored, supposedly, their betrothal vows. But you know, there is no doubt that Mary is expecting and Joseph is stunned. He doesn't know exactly what to think, I'm sure. But there are two things that are rather obvious. The first is that Mary has slept with someone else and is not him. And the second thing is very obvious is the marriage is off. It's over. It's it's finished. But, you know, that in turn raises a very thorny legal issue. And that is, how do you now terminate this betrothal? In Jewish laws, there are only two ways of doing that. The one is, you go before the authorities, you accuse your wife or your husband of unfaithfulness, and you have him or her stoned to death. Kind of a drastic reaction, you might say. Or you could, and that's the other way, you could sign some papers in front of two witnesses and kind of end the whole arrangement, the whole affair rather quietly and just go away and disappear. So what to do? Well, our scripture says that Joseph is a righteous man and we need to keep that in mind. He's a man of uprightness. He's a man of sensitivity and, and in spite of what has happened, he, he doesn't want to publicly humiliate Mary. Maybe he doesn't even know what's all been going on. And certainly he doesn't want her death. He simply wants to sever the ties very quietly. He wants to end this rather sad and distressing chapter in his life without fanfare. But then as he is getting ready to make the legal arrangements, Joseph receives a surprise visitor. An angel comes knocking on his door, so to speak. And the angel actually tells him, maybe he told him other things, but we don't know. But this is what he told him. He said, Joseph, you can't end this betrothal. You cannot divorce Mary. And probably Joseph said, why not? I've got every right to do so. And, and the angel says, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure how that resounded in Jacob's or Joseph's ears. What did he know about the Holy Spirit? Maybe the angel gave him a more elaborate explanation that is not recorded in Scripture. We do not know. But what we do know is the marriage is still on. And what we also know is that in due time, Mary is going to give birth to a son, a boy child. 
And not just any ordinary boy child either. No, the angel says, you are, she says to Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, Mary as mother cannot officially name him, but Joseph can and Joseph will. Because the legal standing goes through him. And so what's Joseph going to name him? What's he going to call this Holy Spirit child? What's he going to call this wondrous baby? He's to call him Jesus. Of course, why that? Why does the Holy Spirit, why does the angel even get involved in this naming business? Why not simply leave it to Joseph and to Mary together to decide what the name's going to be? And if you're going to choose a name, why not Abraham? Why not Moses? Why not David? Why not some other nice Jewish sounding name? But why the name Jesus? Why is the angel so insistent that this has to be his name? But the only answer that we can come up with, beloved, is that because this is the name that best describes the great work and mission of our Lord. You need to remember biblical names are more than just decorations or fine sounding syllables. Biblical names tend to be both descriptive as well as prescriptive. They reveal both who you are, and sometimes they reveal what your life is going to be all about. And as for the name Jesus, it right away sets this child apart as Savior, as Deliverer. It sets this child apart also because of the circumstances of his birth and points to the fact that he is going to do something marvelous, mighty, and magnificent. Indeed, this child is going to save his people from their sins. He's going to deal with their sins, their trespasses, their iniquities. Now, beloved, that may not sound like all that much. We've heard the word sin. We've heard the word transgression, iniquity, trespass so many times. It hardly causes any reaction at all. And, you know, that's really rather unfortunate. Because if there is still a word that should wake us up and catch our attention and our concern, it's the word sin. Because sin is related to so many things in this life and and so many things that happen in this life and in this world in which we live. You cannot look at life without seeing sin. And what sin does is so dramatic. You know, you go to the doctor because you have a few aches and pains. And the doctor prescribes a whole bunch of tests and you get all these tests done. And and while these tests are being scheduled and while you're waiting for them to be done and while you're waiting for the results, you worry and you worry. I know we're not supposed to worry, but we worry anyway. You worry about the outcome. 
And when the doctor gives the word and he says, it's nothing to be worried about, you breathe this huge, huge sigh of relief. But if the doctor looks at you in the eye and says, it's cancer, that's a different story, isn't it? You hear that one word, it sends a shiver down your spine, and it changes your life in a moment. Everything. That's the power of one word. Now, we've heard a little bit about the power of that word this morning when we prayed for those who are sick with cancer in our congregation. It changes everything for them, for their families, everything for all of us who also know them. And it raises a huge, huge level of concern, of empathy, of sympathy. Well, you know, as that one word, cancer, generates an immediate response with us. So so that one word, sin, should really generate somewhat the same kind of response in us. Because it's it's that one word that, that, that summarizes and catches what's so wrong, so much wrong in this life of ours. It explains the terrible kind of things we do to ourselves and we do to others. It describes why this world of ours is so full of violence and greed and disease and distress and immorality and poverty. It identifies where, why we're so often at loggerheads with one another as well as with God. And ultimately explains why there is such a thing as judgment and condemnation and hell. You know, you could even make the case to say that the word sin should have a greater impact than the word cancer. Cancer can destroy this life. But you know, sin has the power and the ability not only to destroy this life, but also everlasting life. Cancer doesn't have eternal consequences, but sin does. Cancer can take many things away, but sin can take everything away. There's nothing as awful as sin. Sometimes we think there is no cure. No cure for cancer. Perhaps no cure for sin either, but there we are wrong. And, and that's the great comfort that you find in Lord's Day 11. We're wrong because the gospel that's summarized in Lord's Day 11 says, there is a solution for this most terrible predicament of all. And it's in Christ. Because he will save his people from their sins. Not he might or he may be. Or if he wants to or likes to. No, he will. He will do something about it. He will deal with it. He will rescue his people. He will save his own. That's, beloved, why his coming into the world is such a dramatic event in the history of redemption and in the history of this world. Why are the angels singing? 
Why are the wise men coming? Why are the shepherds worshiping? Why does people all over the world celebrate his birth every year again? Because there is no greater gift than this gift of God's Son as our Savior. And beloved, I trust you understand that. And that you find your, your joy in that. God has seen our greatest need. And he has addressed our greatest need with his greatest gift. The gift of his son, Jesus. But then, beloved, if the angel is very emphatic about the reason why this Jesus is coming. The apostles are also, interestingly enough, when you turn to the book of Acts, they're also as emphatic. Maybe not quite as emphatic as the angels, but in some ways they are. And you find that especially when you look, for example, at chapters like Acts 4 and Acts 5. You might say in the book of Acts, it's confrontation time. On the one side, you have the elders, you have the teachers of the law, the high priests, the temple guard, the members of the Sanhedrin, all the powers that be. And on the other side, you have some simple fishermen type running around Jerusalem spouting off about a certain Jesus. Of course, the people in authority are determined to do one thing, and that is to stuff the genie back in the bottle. This business about Jesus Christ, they say, has to stop. This preaching of these so-called apostles, their so-called miracles, their rapid increase in favor with the people, it has to be nipped in the bud. No more. Deal with it. Deal with it now. Arrayed against all of this, we said, are some simple fishermen, a few men, and a few men who speak a few words, namely the gospel. You might say this is a case of no competition at all. And it would be no competition either, were it not for one thing, and that is that these men, it says very specifically in Scripture, are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, that other counselor, when he promised, has been sent and has filled these men with wisdom and power and courage and conviction. And you see that standing before the Sanhedrin, Peter takes the floor and he defends the healing of that crippled beggar. Asked by what power or what name did they do this? Peter replies, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you today. In other words, Peter's saying, I didn't do it. It's not as if I have some kind of magical potion or power at my disposal. No, ultimately what happened, happened because Jesus did it. The Jews killed him. But God raised him. 
The rejected stone has done this. The one who's become the capstone. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man has been healed. But then it's interesting to note, beloved, that having said that, Peter can't quite contain himself. He goes on, he goes further. As a matter of fact, he even becomes more emphatic and insistent. He says, notice verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's quite a statement. Often the question is asked, where can salvation be found? And surely you don't want to say that salvation can only be found with Christianity and with Jesus Christ, do you? Well, Peter says, if my hearing is right and my brains are working, Peter says, salvation cannot be found anywhere else. No matter where you look, you can only find it in Jesus. And in addition, Peter declares there is no other name when it comes to salvation. Not Buddha. Not the gods of Hinduism, not the gods of your own making, not the gods of the East or of the West. None of them can really save. There is no other name. Can it be said any clearer than that? Only Jesus saves. The cure for sin lies only with him. Putting it very simply, beloved Peter here proclaims that the gospel of Jesus Christ is utterly exclusive. There's no other way around it. I know, I know, we live in a very inclusive kind of age. You have to include everybody. You shouldn't distinguish. You shouldn't discriminate. And I can agree with a lot of that. But you can't get around the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. You may want to be kind and benevolent and gracious to all kinds of other religions, but if you do, You are not speaking instead with Peter and the apostles. They're radical in their pronouncements. If you want the dreaded disease of sin to be eradicated in your life, there's only one address, one name, one person. And so, beloved, we need to realize that. And at the same time, we need to realize that it isn't so that every way is a way to God or that every gospel that's out there has some kind of merit or every God that's out there has some kind of power. Peter rules that out. There's only one way. There's only one name. God hasn't given any other ways, any other names. 
To be saved, you have to go through Jesus. And nowhere else. And beloved, you know that. This is nothing new to you. But, you know, the question may be this. Do we still dare to say that? In our tolerant, benevolent, inclusive world, do we still dare to stand up and say this is the way it is according to the gospel? Or have we all become so politically correct and so namby-pamby that we have lost all courage and all conviction? We stand for nothing and we fall for everything. So, beloved, it's so very important to read not only the Gospels, but also to read the Acts of the Apostles and to be reminded these are the acts of Jesus Christ through His servants, the apostles. But then, beloved, no longer, no more do we are we called to stand up for this Jesus. We are also called to look at something else. Something else tied to this name of, of Jesus, and you find that remarkably in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Because there the name Jesus pops up again in a certain circumstance and context. You may know the church of Philippi is one of those better churches mentioned in the New Testament. It seems to be have made of a membership that was fairly lively, very active, very evangelistic. It gets good marks and a good reputation. But it's not perfect. No church on earth is perfect. And also in the church of Philippi, it seems that there were some problems in terms of helping one another. So the question becomes, how does one help one another? What standard, what model does one follow? How should the relationship in a congregation function? Well, to answer that question, the Apostle Paul points again to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, and you may recall those words, that Jesus, when he was born, was in very nature God, that he is God, that he is most exalted, that he is head over all, that he is ruler supreme, and that he voluntarily does something as God. He decides to come down. He decides to become a human. He decides to become even a servant. He humbles himself. And he even humbles himself to the point of death and death on an accursed cross. Now, can you imagine that? I don't think you can, and I can't, but try to imagine that. Here you are, you're living in the incomparable heights of, of heaven and the glory that is manifested there in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. And you go from the heights to the depths. The depths of sin, rejection, wrath, even curse. You know, as, as God, he couldn't go any higher. 
As man, he couldn't go any lower. And the whole motivation behind that is the motivation of service. Jesus Christ is the most profound example of a servant and of service. Paul says Jesus didn't remain in heaven. He came down. All the way down. Down to hell. But then Paul also says that as deep as he went, then the Father at a certain point raised him up, and the Father in raising him up gave him a name, a special name, a name that is above every other name. And what's the name? It's the name Jesus. And Paul says one day, every knee is going to bow before this name. Every tongue is going to utter this name. Everyone, everything above and below. Everything in all of creation will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God. The Father. Now that's quite a statement, quite a boast, quite a prediction. You know, today there are some knees that bow to Jesus. Most do not. If you ask who recognizes the Lordship of Jesus Christ today, then you have to say not many people and not many institutions. His name isn't really heard in the United Nations. It's not heard in the parliaments of Canada or even in the legislature of British Columbia very often, let alone in the Supreme Court of Canada. Who cares about the name of Jesus today? Who pays it any real homage? Besides lip service. My beloved, do not despair. Paul is saying that a day is coming when Christ's reign will become visible and overwhelming. Our king, born at Christmas, died on Good Friday, raised on Easter Sunday, ascended on Ascension Day. He is coming again, and he's coming not to twiddle his thumbs, but to reign, to make his name triumphant, coming to claim his rightful inheritance. And when he comes, he will come not alone, but with his saints. The meek will inherit the earth. And the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And that one name, Jesus, will ring from heaven. And instantly every knee will bow. It doesn't matter whose knee. And every tongue will confess, and it doesn't matter whose tongue. Now, this is the Lord. And so, beloved, you can see that that one name, Jesus, there's so many implications. Implications for salvation. Implications in terms of the exclusiveness of Jesus' claims. Implications for the life 
and the triumphs to come. Let us rejoice. Rejoice that we may be followers of this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And beloved, let us not be afraid to stand up for his great name. Let us not be insecure when it comes to testifying as to who we follow, who our leader is, or about the name of our Redeemer. If we testify to his name before men, he will testify about us before the Father. So, beloved, rejoice in Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.